One of the joys of growing up is being able to make the offhanded comment back in my day. Looking at me, I'm sure most of you think that I have no right to use that phrase. And the truth is, more often than not, my, I find my ears perking up when I hear someone older than me saying, back in my day. The joy of being young is being surrounded by people who are full of life experience and wisdom who can say, back in my day. In fact, I think the travesty of being young or even middle-aged is that we finally come to a place of realizing that we would like to have that wisdom and experience around us around the time that it's no longer available. Today, the world that we live in, things are changing faster than they have ever changed ever before. The acceleration of technological advances over the past century, the expansion of the human population on earth, all of these things are moving at an exponential rate. Just consider the years of scientific research needed to build a rocket ship that could take man to the moon. I hold a more compelling, more more computing power than was in the entire Apollo in my cell phone that I keep in my back pocket from day to day. The phrase, back in my day, seems to be more relevant for generations as they get younger and younger. Back in my day, if a young boy wanted to take piano lessons or karate or some sort of extracurricular activity that required a teacher and classes and everything else, he would also have to take up a job to pay for his lessons and the equipment used to do such a thing. I mowed my neighbor's backyard every week back in my day, every summer for five years, and in the winter I painted siding and raked magnolia leaves, and you will never find a magnolia tree on any property that I own because of it. Back in my day, I worked, even for the fun activities that we did as children. Back in my day, if a young boy wanted to make plans with his friends, that meant getting on his bike, riding it, a quarter of a mile or half a mile to his friend's house, knocking on the door to sheepishly be met with another adult and asking, is Brad available to play? Half the time I was met with the no, which meant I had to ride my bike back home. I rode my bike all that way for no reason. Back in my day, we didn't have the cell phone to call our friends and see what we wanted to do. And it just didn't make sense that we would call every time we wanted to go play. The whole point was getting outside. Back in my day, if you wanted to play video games, you had to get out of your house and drive to an actual store at a physical location and buy a physical copy of a game. Now, some of you are starting to realize that my back in my day is different than yours because you said back in my day, we didn't have color TV. And I'm sure someone else said back in my day, we didn't have a TV. For those of you who are younger... And those of you who are young like me realize that the gap in history between these things is not as far away as it seems. This morning, we sit around people who could say, back in my day, if you wanted to get video games, you had to go to a store. And we also sit among those who would say, back in my day, we had no TV. I'm young. But I'm wise enough to listen to the voice of those around me because I've seen how much things have changed in my short life. Can I tell you, though, the scariest thing that hasn't changed? Back in my day, if someone told you that something was a fact, 
it meant something. If someone told you that something was a fact, it meant something back in my day. Nowadays, calling something a fact doesn't mean much of anything at all. People can feel things into factual status. Well, that's the way I feel about it. And then they say that because suddenly that that is a real feeling and a factual feeling that also the thing that they're feeling is factual. I don't know what kind of nonsense this is, but if somebody says something's a fact today, think twice. Back in my day, we used to call those sorts of things, these opinion-based realities that people have hinged all of their opinions upon, opinions. No one got offended when their opinion was disputed. They recognized that it was unique to them. And we might get hot under the collar discussing our opinions and getting stirred up and, and encouraging one another and edifying another, one another by challenging each other. But no one ever had the audacity to say that their opinion was a fact. Do you remember when facts used to mean something? The shift in society and culture isn't something that surprises me, especially as we look at the more specifics at where these opinions are attacking. Most of the opinions that we find in this world are not attacking social issues, but they are attacking spiritual issues. Not issues of this world, but issues that belong in the church. A month ago, when we were studying Ephesians chapter 5, we made the observation that marriage and family was something that belonged to the church because it's something given to the church, because it's something that God created to point people to the church. But it isn't as private as we've made it out to be because it takes a church, a local body of believers, to encourage and support men and women as they learn what it means to live life as husband and wife, as mother and father. We looked at this through the truth of God's word. And yet Tuesday of this week, the national legislator voted to codify same-sex marriage into law. Marriage. This isn't a political issue. It isn't a social issue. This is a religious issue. And I say to you, those who struggle to take heed to the admonition that I gave to you last week, to consider that there are things that belong to the church that need to be fought with spiritual umption and not political zealous attitudes, listen now. The same legislature that passed such an egregious abomination before God is the same legislature where 47 Republican congressmen voted in favor of it. Your politics will not save you. These issues belong to the church. These issues are not a social war. They are a spiritual war. I rejoiced over the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade. I rejoice because there is a dimly lit light of hope that the genocide and mass murder of thousands of babies would stop happening all around us. That the issue of abortion, by the way, isn't a political issue and it's not a social issue, it is a cultural issue. It is a spiritual issue. To figure out when life begins requires we ask the question, what is life? A question medicine hasn't been able to define. A question doctors still don't understand. You would think that physicians would know what death is, and they still give you the same reply, I know it when I see it. 
Standing here in the pulpit and preaching at funerals, I say the same thing. You want to know what life is? When you preach at a funeral and a corpse lies before you in front of the pulpit, you know there's no life in that. And it's not medical. It's spiritual. This issue isn't political. It's not social. It is spiritual. Why then? Is it so hard for us to grab hold of a simple application that if this is a spiritual war, we're better off fighting it spiritually? Why then, when I say instead of getting stirred up and damaging your testimony and everything else, is it so difficult for people to understand that spiritual wars require spiritual solutions? That social wars are only going to propagate and stir up and make these things even worse than they were to begin with. That this is in fact most likely Satan's plan all along because this is the kind of deception that we see exposed in Ephesians chapter 6 that we will look at this morning. I have one contention before we begin. The reason it's so difficult for people to grab hold of that idea, to take that admonition and take it to heart, is because when I say fight with spiritual vehemence, they say, I don't know what that means. Church, it's time that you learn how to fight spiritual battles. And instead of running away to alternatives because you feel more comfortable with it, get closer to God. Our focus this morning will be at the first portion of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. But to keep the context, I'll read again all the way back to Ephesians chapter, verse 10, chapter 6, verse 10. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word and the way that it guides us, the truth that it exposes to us. Lord, please give us insight. God, we come before you this morning with hearts that are hard and not ready to receive your truth, that fight with your truth, that wrestle with it. And God, I thank you for the blessing of an intellect and a wisdom that causes me to grapple with your realities. But God, give me a heart that is humble before you, that is submissive before you. God, give me a heart that reads your word and lets it mean something to me. God, give me a heart that wants to know you more. God, as we turn to your word, I pray that it would be an illumination before us, that we would be able to behold the amazing truth found in your law. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Finally. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil days and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The first piece of spiritual armor Paul gives to us in this illustration, this admonition, this explanation, this application of everything that he's written so far in Ephesians is to put on the belt of truth. Now we get to have a lot of fun 
Because it seems like everything that he is describing to us is symbolic and we want to dive into it and understand all the different pieces of symbolism. But before we can even begin to do that, let's just look at what the text says. Put on the belt of truth. This exposes to us first and foremost that the attacks of the enemy in spiritual warfare begin with a lie. They begin with a lie. They begin with the deceptive acceptance of a society that says marriage is not a spiritual institution, but it's a legal institution. Where did we get that idea? It begins with the acceptance of society saying that life is only valuable because we make it valuable. If you're not able to make your own life valuable, your life has no value. What kind of nonsense is that? I don't know. I, I don't know at what point truth became this amorphous, kind of undefinite, unsolidified type of thing. But if the church is going to have any power in the preaching of the word, in the bringing sinners to know Christ, if the church is going to have any power in seeing a nation of people who are unregenerate and reprobate come to know Christ, the church has to define what truth is. It is absolute. Did you know when we talk about spiritual things and we disagree, one of us is right and one of us is wrong? The only authority between two Christians is the Bible. What makes a revealed theology different than every other world religion that you can find in this world? Rather than speculative philosophy and throwing out an idea and saying, I'm going to build my understanding of the cosmos on this idea that I threw out there. Christians say, I'm not going to figure it out on my own. God has been showing himself to me ever since the beginning. He wants me to know him. He gave me an inspired book. He called people together through history to be carried along by the Holy Spirit to put together the Bible, an inspired text that I can rely on. He carried and inspired people that his holy word, the Bible describes it. And I love this word because it's unique in the Bible. It doesn't exist anywhere else in Greek culture. Paul had to come up with it on his own when he said that the Bible is deonumos, God breathed. And still we have people who call themselves Christians who look at the Bible and say, well, I just don't know if I can get behind that part of it. I think we're not interpreting that the right way. and I don't think that's what the Bible's actually saying. You want to know what's silly? God has been revealing himself since the beginning, and we still think that in the Bible he's trying to confuse us. We still want to look at allegory and and symbolism and everything else, and we call that getting deep. Let me tell you something, my friends. Just because the water's muddy does not mean it's deep. The Bible exists so that it can be clear, so that we can look at it with crystal clarity, and we can see how deep it is. 
real biblical interpretation bases itself off of that assumption. And instead of reading the Bible and saying this is too confusing, I say, I think the text means what it says. And still in Christian circles, we debate that. The first attack of the enemy that we find in spiritual warfare is deception. Paul's already alluded to this in Ephesians 5.13 when he calls attention to this issue of light being present in the church. He calls his issue to truth being self-disclosing. He calls issue to truth being exposing of the lie. The spiritual attacks of Satan come and they will continue to get worse. The Bible promises this for Christians, that spiritual attacks continue to get worse as we draw closer to the day that Christ will come to redeem his church. Revelation 2.10 demonstrates Satan's potential influence over legal proceedings and governments as Jesus identifies Satan as the one who would have the saints of Smyrna thrown in prison. Christians are not told to look forward to the day that Christ will redeem them as a form of escapism. But notice in our text this morning, the imperative command is this. Stand firm. And if you want to stand firm, you have to know what the truth is. Because if you're wibbling and wobbling and being, decept, decept, being deceived here and there, and Satan has the power to cause influence in governments and legal proceedings, and he has more control in this world than you do, how are you going to stand firm if you don't know what the truth is? And how are you going to know what the truth is if you won't read your Bible? If you won't first submit to its authority? If you won't first get out of your head and say, I am a finite creation that was created by my designer for the purpose of glorifying him and enjoying life with him. I was existed for this and he's given me intellect and he's given me wisdom, but I'm also a sinner who's wrestling against the depraved flesh. And if I try to figure all of these things out on my own, well, that's folly. You know what's not folly? Building upon knowledge. What makes Christians different than mystics and pantheists? My foundation of knowledge is on the continually revealed God. Revealing himself first through nature and creation. Then through special revelation, through miracle. Through the manifesting, through the orchestration of history, through sovereignty, and through, most of all, an inspired Bible. Christians are not told to look forward to the day that we will be redeemed in Christ. We are told that things are going to get worse in the last days, and we are in the last days. And we are told, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We are told, be patient in tribulation. To Timothy, Paul writes, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, which means to lie. The same thing Satan does without self-control, brutal, not loving 
good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance, appearance of godliness, but denying its power. I wonder if this is a picture of the church or a picture of the world. Christians who deny the power of truth. When we are clear about who our enemy is and who we spend the time, when we, when we are clear about who the enemy is and we spend the time to know what God says about his self, we can see the schemes of Satan in this world. John eight forty four, Jesus reveals does not that Satan does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There's no one more skilled at deception in all of creation than Satan. Is it any wonder then that in today's world, the fact doesn't mean anything? Is it any surprise that in the world that we live in, to say that something is a fact doesn't mean what it meant back in my day? You're told that you can't be saved because you aren't good enough to be saved. Churches even, those that claim to be churches, propagate an idea that salvation is in some way tangible or tied to, or tangent, sorry, tied to the idea that you have to be good enough to be a Christian. That if you want to come into a church, you have to be right before the Lord. That is a lie. The church has gotten away from the concepts of grace and what it means to be saved by God's goodness. That he reaches out, that he places faith inside of the heart of the Christian. That that Christian, because of God's work, is able to be saved. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own work, but a free gift of God. Not of your own doing so that no one may boast. And we stand behind that and we say on the other end that that's just exactly where I need to stop. But go on to verse 10 and it says because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Good works come as a result. It boldness comes as a result. Understanding truth comes as a result. This entire picture that Paul is giving us of the armor of God of a, of a, of a man standing ready for battle is pulled from the ancient scrolls of Isaiah chapter 59, where God uses the prophet himself to give us a picture of the warrior. And he says, because there is no one among you who stands for truth. That was his condemnation to Israel. That is his condemnation to the church in Ephesus. And I ask, is that his condemnation to the church in Greenwood? When will we get serious about truth? I think when we start taking the Bible to be serious. The central theme 
of this entire picture that Paul is painting, that the Christian defense is absolute truth. There is nothing relative about it. There is no one who can figure it out and move. He tells us in verse 14, stand therefore, because truth is not moving. If you pick up truth and you put it on, there's no reason to move. If this is a fact, it doesn't change. If this is real, authoritative truth, the Christian can stand. Truth is not about moving. Truth is not about moving. Truth isn't moving. The same thing that was true yesterday is the same thing that's true today. What happens when Christians have to change their stance? What happens when Christians have to move? Why is it that... Why is it that churches need to and have had to repent of a stance that segregation based on race was biblically mandated? This is a hard truth, isn't it? The church isn't perfect. Through history, the church has done things that have been bad. When you speak to people who are not Christians and they get the idea that you might be a genuine believer, they say things like, well, you are the kind of Christian I think I could stand behind. And I say to them, That's because I'm the kind of Christian that reads the Bible. And I think it means what it means. I think it says what I need to hear. And I think when I disagree with it, that it has more authority than I do. The reason churches have had to repent, the reason churches have had to call to being flawed is because we have instead of standing on the truth of the Bible stood on things that do not belong to us because we get wrapped up in social issues because we get wrapped up in political issues because instead of realizing that I am a child of God grafted into his kingdom and a part of his inheritance and that I belong to the kingdom of heaven we get wrapped up saying that I want to be a part of this world and I ask Is the church really filled with saints? Truth doesn't move. If you have to move, you aren't standing on truth. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. I would rather the entire church repent together when we're wrong, when we find ourselves standing on something that's not the truth, and move together that we would return to the truth and authority of the Bible than continue to stand there and damage the church's reputation. We need to avoid distraction because the truth is absolute and sufficient. Now, I said the truth doesn't move, but I want to point out that what Paul writes here is that truth is the belt. 
Of course, the belt isn't really the the right word. I think other translations say gird yourself up or gird your loins up that you would be able to stand in the truth. And we find that this truth has not only the authority that we stand on, but it is actually what holds every other piece of armor up that Paul's going to disclose for us here. The breastplate of righteousness would have rested upon this belt or this girded loin. Righteousness in the Christian life would rest upon truth, taking the weight off of the warrior's shoulders. It would have made the Christian mobile, allowing the truth of the gospel to have effect whenever he puts shoes on. It is central. It doesn't move but it allows us to be on the move. When we're girded together, having together the spiritual defenses available only through truth and through salvation itself. Without the truth, the breastplate would be pointless. It would be too heavy. It would be cumbersome. Jesus tells you that his righteousness, take up his yoke, it is not burdensome. Because it rests on the truth. The shoes would be pointless because we couldn't move without the different parts of our armor falling apart because we wouldn't be able to hold, that's right, the tools that we're supposed to use to fight wicked things. The sword, which is God's word, wouldn't be able to be carried. The shield, all these things would be pointless if there was no truth girding them all together. Christians, realize spiritual warfare begins in deception. This is what Satan is good at. Your absolute defense is the truth. And that truth is absolute. Avoid distraction. Because the truth is also sufficient. Be ready to move. But until you need to move, stand firm. Our world does not need more churches that are bouncing around. And I pray that you would hear me on this. Our church, our world does not need more churches that are seeker sensitive. Our world does not need more churches that care more about bringing people into the church than they do raising up saints that can go out into the world. When you get that order backwards, what you end up, what we have ended up seeing, what Christians are raising up, the reason churches are declining in attendance, the reason associational meetings are declining in participation, the reason all of these different things are losing involvement is because we have focused on bringing people in instead of raising people up. And so you have topwater Christians that think that they're saved that probably don't stand for truth to begin with because they don't submit to it. The thing is, we probably have raised up generations that don't seek truth for themselves. And still, the church is saying, we need to bring people in. We need programs that attract families. And we need to do things that call people to come sit in the pews and to hear the gospel preached and everything else. 
The work of salvation belongs to God. The work that he's given to the church is to edify the saints, that you would be raised up, that your life would be so enriched that when you go out into the world, you would have an effective witness, that you would stand for the truth. We don't need more churches that are spineless, that stand on nothing. We don't need more purpose-driven life. We need more Bible-centered life. The church is weak because Christians are weak. The church lacks power because Christians don't rest in the power of the one who saved them. The church lacks power because young preachers stand up and they're afraid to offend their friends. They're afraid to hurt the feelings of people that they love. They're afraid to tell people that the boldness that is proclaimed in the gospel is given to Christians to stand for the truth, to not get distracted for things. Because preachers are afraid to bring up issues that are abhorrent before God and not call it what it is. When we see sin, we must call it sin. When we see evil, we must call it evil. When things are wicked, we must call it wicked. And that's not to hurt people's feelings. It is to stand in truth. The church has to take what the Bible says as authoritative. It has to be serious. Otherwise, we gather together to follow the philosophy of man. Loved ones, back in my day, Churches were a group of people that agreed with each other. Who met together on Sunday and they went home. And I don't think we saw many people being edified. For the older generation who carries much wisdom, whose ears I, who's, who cause my ears to turn to listen to the wisdom of your life. When I look at the effects of your church. I grieve that we have raised up top water Christians. We all have opinions and preferences, but we have no privilege to determine what the Bible says. The authority of interpreting scripture is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do we rest in that? When it comes to issues of addressing sin, when it comes to issues of disciplining church members for living in sin, when it comes to issues of protecting the church and recognizing what the church is, do we stand for that? When it comes to it, matters of spiritual warfare, do we rest in truth? The world doesn't need more of top water Christians. We need Bereans. People who care so much about the word of God that they turn to it and they say, this is going to challenge me and I'm going to let it challenge me. Father in heaven.
Thank you so much for giving us truth, for making us different, for calling us apart from the world. God, make us Bereans. Make us love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Will you stand with us as we sing? Number 435.